Well, hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will continue our look at uh, The Minister's Wooing by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, this is the second of three novels we're going to be looking at um, by her. Um, and in the last episode, we basically kind of set up the novel, some of its themes and some of its characters. And um, this middle part, it, it's to be honest, it's a little bit of a drag, I, I think. It's, um, I mean, I still think it's a, a very, very well-written book and enjoyable to read. It's just, um, you know, it's kind of just getting us from, from here to there with, with the characters. We do get introduced to a few new characters. Most importantly, uh, we get a, a much better look at uh, Minister Hopkins, who is the, the, the Jonathan Edwards follower in the book. Um, of course, that's one of the major themes of the book is this transition from strict Calvinist uh, theology to the new light uh, theology of, of the, the Great Awakening. And of course, the theology that Stowe is going to embrace and, and advocate for. So our, our characters are largely on that side, but there's the older uh, established members of the congregation who kind of stand in for opposition to to that. Um, so we learn more about him, and he's, of course, the minister that's pursuing and wooing uh, Mary, Mary Scudder, our, our main character, who, of course, is in love with James, who went off to sea. So, um, you know, we basically have the interaction between these two families, the Scudder and the Marvins, at the heart of the book, and then we have this cast of characters around them that... Uh, um, you know, are going to present various romantic interests to Mary. And the two most important that we get here is Samuel Hopkins, uh, the doctor, the minister, and Aaron Burr, the real, like, the real Aaron Burr, vice president of the United States, later, um, you know, who does the conspiracy, later after he's vice president, they killed Alexander Hamilton. So now, clearly, when this was written, um, Burr is already a bit of a historiographical villain uh, in in American historical writing at the time. I'd have to look a little bit more into like the legacy and the memory of Aaron Burr throughout time, and I'm probably not going to do that. But my feeling from this text is that he's he's kind of villainous because he's he's chasing a couple girls. So that's what we. Um, we, we see he's, he's chasing uh, Mary and he's chasing this French, uh, a married French woman who's, uh, now she's in love with Burr, so, but it, it's like an adultery, so it's bad, right? It's, um, and that's Aaron Burr. He's a hypocrite because he's, uh, you know, a grandson of Jonathan Edwards himself, right? So he's in that, that Calvinist tradition, He's a descendant of that Calvinist tradition that that Stowe is critiquing and questioning. So I, I think that's what is trying to be done with Aaron Burr's character. Um, but the, his sections aren't as interesting as I think you might expect. They, they like I like I said, this whole section did uh, go go a little slower for me. In fact, that's why this episode is, is probably a little delayed. It's like it just took me a long time to get through this, and I was distracted by some of the work things, and this section was kind of easy to, to set aside when I started getting into it. Um, 
There are some interesting things here in this section, though. I, I think obviously the the religious conflict between like the younger and the older generations, and the the old and the new, the the second great awakening and the or the first great awakening versus like the old traditional Calvinist religion. So, anyways, I guess it's worth worth talking about because we get we got to kind of understand Jonathan Edwards and. If I really wanted to, I probably could read his speeches because I think there's a whole Library of America volume devoted to Edwards' uh, sermons and things. But let, let's just go to Wikipedia to to talk about uh, the different factions of, of Calvinism, right? Of course, traditional old Calvinism is where you have, you know, based on the elders, the elect will become elders in the community and will will be like the political and religious leaders of the community. And if you want to join the church, you have to like prove that you're one of the elect and you have to go through this whole process. This goes way back to the origins of, of New England and it's a strict kind of predestinarian approach um, to it. Um, of course, how one can have predestination and be able to like justify their, their, their salvation or being a member of the elect, of course, it was never really uh, well explained to me, but uh, there it is. So with this great awakening challenging this traditional religious views with, with like new, uh, new light religions, um, but also you have new traditions within Calvinism. So one of these is Jonathan Edwards, and that's called New Divinity. Um, but you also have like uh, the traditional Calvinists around, right? So the liberals led by Charles Chauncey, this is reading from Wikipedia, oppose the irrational enthusiasm of the revivals. This faction advocated universalism and their successors would become Unitarians. So there's rejecting aspects of, of the Great Awakening, but they're also rejecting like strict predestination with their universalism. And basically that's the idea that all will be, be saved um, eventually. Salvation is a gift for everyone. Okay, reading on. The traditional old Calvinists led by men such as Moses Mather and Ezra Stiles disagreed with what they considered deviations from Orthodox Reformed theology, but this group ceased to exist during the Second Great Awakening. Well, that's getting ahead of our story a little bit. New divinity men such as Joseph Bellamy, Samuel Hopkins, and Timothy Dwight were revivalists who tried to steer a moderate course between the old lights who opposed revival and the radical new lights who separated from the established con congregational churches. So this is a second great awakening influenced movement within the congregational churches. So that's like the Edwardsian approach. Um, now, how does this work out? Well, the, you have the... The whole question of like how one is saved is at the heart of all of this, right? The means of grace. Quote, Edward's distinction between natural ability and moral ability had implications for new divinity preaching and evangelism that were departures from traditional Puritan beliefs. For the Puritans, conversion was a gradual process involving spiritual crisis, humiliation, and sorrow for sin. Only after these struggles in utilizing the means of grace would the individual discern within himself faith and love of Christ and be encouraged to repent. Okay, I, I'm not sure how that fits in with like predestination. I guess you would only go through that process if you were predestined for salvation. So, and and this is your material evidence for salvation if you can show you went through these things, right? These steps, um, you do the means for grace because you're one of the elect. That, that's I guess how I understand it. 
New Divinity ministers, however, called all sinners to repent and believe the gospel immediately because everyone had a natural ability to do so. So they're saying this is a much more immediate process, right? Like the born-again narrative. So we're like you're down in the gutter with in your own vomit, and it's like then you realize you accept Jesus in your heart and accept the gospel in whole, and it can be a very immediate repentance and conversion, right? Now, the old Calvinists thought that's not possible, um, but the new lights or the new divinity sort of embraced that aspect of it more, which is something that was attractive to the non-congregational churches like the Methodists and the Baptists who were working outside of the congregational churches and actually posing as um, like a, being a, like an alternative to the traditional con- congregational churches. So reading on a little bit, I'm not going to bother you too much on this, but uh, the new divinity's theology of religious experience was influenced by Edwards' work's treatise concerning religious affections and the nature of true virtue. The new divinity argued that the true Christian seeks the good of all things, including God and other people above themselves. This was called disinterested benevolence because Christian benevolence is never serving, unlike the benevolence of the unconverted. Now, this fits very well into the Second Great Awakening context of Stowe, where you have, like, Second Great Awakening uh, faithful religious people during the, that period embracing all these social reform movements, right? So that's, that's Christian benevolence. Clean up the cities, help out prostitutes, help sailors, uh, end slavery, right? Disinterested benevolence was the basis for piety according to the new divinity. It originates at conversion when the Holy Spirit was believed to renew the heart so that the convert desires union with Christ through faith and embraces the way of the cross, which is self-sacrifice. On and on. So, so you get the idea. So that's the tension being played out here. So it's like Hopkins and, and Edwards. So now the interesting thing about the story here is we have Aaron Burr, who is uh, the grandson of, of Edwards himself. So he's an inheritor of this tradition, but hypocritical in his way of life. He's a symbol of someone falling off that religious wagon and, and turning, kind of turning evil, right? That's why I wondered about the, how Burr was basically seen in the 1850s. Um, and I think by then already he sort of had a bad reputation because it was already, it was during Jefferson's presidency where he did the the scheme out west to try to form like his own little independent state and and all of that. So um, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about Aaron Burr to, to say if he's being fairly represented at all. Be, if he's being fairly represented or not, I don't know. Um, here he's basically kind of villainous, but he's the the bad suitor. And then we have uh, the minister uh, who is the, the more promising suitor, Samuel Hopkins, right? Who, of course, is... So, I mean, this real historical figure, uh, not just Burt, but Hopkins, is in there. Now, again, I don't know how accurate this is. I, I, I know next to nothing about Samuel Hopkins, except that he's one of these uh, First Great Awakening folks. Um, but... Anyways, um, the religious stuff is really interesting. There's several chapters here that get into into uh, religion. Um, we have a, a couple of sermons that are given where we get uh, Hopkins speeches. Uh, we get um, uh, a whole chapter called "The Views of Divine Government," which is basically uh, a chapter where a lot of this new divinity is kind of laid out. 
in some degree, um, and especially in the context of of the American Revolution. This this chapter almost is like outside the novel. It's just like like a lesson to the reader on uh, new divinity teachings, right? There's whole paragraphs here, which is just like theological discussions of, of the beliefs of this, this kind of reformed Calvinism. So we have that, but uh, so that's great stuff actually and, and worth checking out if you're interested in it, in it at all. But maybe still, I'm not sure it's worth the, the sweat. Um, you know, even I was like jumping to Wikipedia, right, to, to catch up on this stuff rather than kind of burn through the text. <clears throat> that said, another interesting thing to talk about here is slavery. Um, there's a, quite a lot about slavery in this uh, novel. Uh, the sermon, chapter 15, is basically um, the doctor giving a sermon um, against slavery um, and talking about the evils of slavery. So this is that kind of Christian benevolence idea. It's like we should sacrifice for the freedom. And he, Hopkins himself was actually an early abolitionist and did give speeches, sermons, I should say, on this very topic. So this is drawn right from life, I think. Maybe this is actually one of his sermons, right, where he argues for the, the moral equ equivalency of, of blacks and whites and, and all those, you know, and he was a, one of the first abolitionists white abolitionists anyways, in, in America. So he's presented well. Now, he's, of course, not Mary's prime romantic interest. Mary has a deeper affection and love for um, um, James, right, who's off at sea. It's also in this section of the book that we, we, we kind of get plot moving on that aspect, but I'll come to that in a little bit. I don't want to get ahead of myself on the, on the slavery thing. Um, we're introduced to Candace in this part of the novel, who is um, Mary Scudder's servant. And I think, is she a slave at the beginning of the novel? I think she might be. But uh, yeah, I think there's a scene where they're talking about slavery. And it's like, well, would you free... Candace, and the question is like, well, does she want to be free? So they ask her. So the, they kind of have a bet almost where they said like, if Candace wants to be free, will you free her? And he and the, and the character agrees. And then they talk to her and it's like, would you prefer to be free? And she says, yes, I'd prefer to be free. So, um, but she still kind of works as a servant through all this. Um, so there's a kind of a complex relationship towards um, the Marvin side and the Scudder side through this Candace character, and she sort of is a, a friend of, of Mary, Mary Scudder, through her, her dilemmas. Um, then we have, so, so there's a lot here about slavery, and obviously we'd expect that from Harry Peter Stowe, who was a, a strong abolitionist and, uh, and an opponent of slavery. And she wrote her, she became famous writing a book against slavery, which we just finished talking about not that long ago. Um, yeah, I think the chapter where they talk about this is the test of theology. Yeah, here it is. I'll, I'll read it. Did it ever occur to you, my friend, said the doctor, that, that's Hopkins, 
that the enslaving of the African race is a clear violation of the great law, which commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves and a dishonor upon the Christian religion, more particularly in us Americans, whom the Lord has so marvelously protected in our recent struggle for our own liberty. And then the other guy, his name's Simon, I never regarded it in this light. Possibly not, my friend, said the doctor. So much doth established custom blind the minds of the best of men. But since I have given more particular attention to the case of the poor Negroes here in Newport, the thought has more and more labored on my mind, more especially as our right struggles for liberty have turned my attention to the rights which every human creature hath before God. End quote. So he is making his uh, religious case for the end of slavery based on the moral equality of all people and the natural right to have liberty from God, all that. Um, it's, a, it's another, there's a lot of these anti-slavery chapters kind of passed in because then we have the, yeah, the next chapter is called the practical test where the question is, do we free Candace essentially? So the, the test of, these two chapters go together. The test of theology is the spiritual battle followed by the practical battle in the next chapter. So I like how that was, was done, that, that contrast between the intellectual fight to actually having outcomes, right? Because you can have all the intellectual battles you want, but if it's not improving people's lives, it doesn't really matter. Um, I guess the only other interesting character to mention is Virginie, Vir Virginie, Virginie de Frontenac. She is, uh, she shows up um, around the, t not long after Aaron Burr shows up. And she's basically there to be the, the love triangle with Burr right because Burr's chasing both Mary and her and she's married Virginia you know Virginia de Frontenac is married so Aaron Burr's really bad for pursuing her right um and and Mary actually this is a little bit later in the book but Mary helps hold off Burr's advances and and, and keep her true to her religious commitments in her marriage okay so that's that's part of the story uh, but she's a Roman Catholic so there's some back and forth on religion there too and and Mary comes off as pretty open-minded in religion they have conversations about about faith and beliefs um, and you know the language to use and things like that so like that's well done so I, I think Stowe does want to say that her view of religion is open to anybody like it doesn't matter what religion you come to new divinity is true for anyone catholics or, or not um but you know that's that's part of it now about the time that de frontenac is entered into the story this is chapter 20 um we get uh tidings from overseas which is the rumors that james's ship has been destroyed uh or sunk or lost at sea and that James has died at sea. So she, from this point on, is a believer that the man she really loves, James Marvin, uh, is, is lost. And so that is going to make this, uh, in many ways, like, like Uncle Tom's Cabin in some ways, in which we have a character facing great loss and having to struggle against that with Christian faith. Uh, although... You know, Uncle Tom would be that character, I suppose, but we see others that fit this um, this characteristic um, in that book. Um, 
but it's I, I see some commonalities between the this idea of of serious profound loss and then spirituality Christianity religious belief somehow helping her endure throughout this now uh, my understanding is he doesn't die. I have to get to the end of the novel. He comes back, and that's going to be how the plot's resolved, and the and the love triangle and the minister's wooing and stuff is all going to be resolved around that issue, or around his return. But uh, you know, as the end of the section, I want to read for today. We, we we get this news that he's not coming back, and Mary then has to face that. We get a whole chapter called Mysteries, which is really about her sorrow. It's a really long chapter, over ten pages, and it's essentially all about how bad she feels about um, about the loss of James. Um, so I think that's all I really need to say about this. Like I said, it's, it drags at times, and there's um, it didn't quite grip me the way the early part of the book is. I just still think it's good. I think it's, it's better than most books out there, um, and it's better than I thought it would be. You know, I wasn't expecting much going into these other two Harry Peter Stone novels. But now I'm kind of excited to, to read Old Town Folk, almost because it's like more obscure than The Minister's Wooing. This, the Minister's Wooing, I think at least people have heard of, uh, if they haven't read it, or they might know a little bit about it. Um, but even searching for this, I find very little commentary about this book. I don't think there's a single review on YouTube about The Minister's Wooing. Um, you know, some stuff on Goodreads, of course, but haven't seen much. And then Old Town Folks, like, I, you know, how many people even know about this book? That's like a Jeopardy question. I guess it would be too hard for a Jeopardy question, right? Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see what's going on in that book. It, it seems, I, I'll, I think I'll be in for a surprise because I was a bit surprised by the minister's wing. I thought I was just going to get a sentimental love triangle thing. I wasn't going to, I didn't think I was going to get all this like theology worked into the story. And it's worked in pretty well. It's, the, the way it's worked in is through characters that are actually part of that movement. Right? Um, so that's, that's a nice thing about the story. Um, you know, it, it almost verges on historical fiction uh, with the use of, of historical characters like Aaron Burr and, and Hopkins. So, yeah, I, I think check it out um, if, if you have time. It would be worth just glancing. See if it's your cup of tea. But um, it, it's a little too long. I, I think that's what I want to say. I think, like, especially that chapter on her sorrows, it's very much like Stowe. You, you, I don't even think there's any like sections, though, about sorrow and loss this long in any one place of Uncle Tom's cabin. I mean, it's like 12, 13 pages of just Mary being sad <laughs> about, about losing James. And, and it was a little bit much. But still, overall, I think solid, solid book so far. So uh, I'll leave it at that. So um, anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time when I finish up my thoughts on the minister's wooing. Um, so looking forward to it. See you then.